Well, wonderful. Um, we are now uh, entering into the end of the book of Daniel. Last week, we saw Daniel getting another vision and uh, in chapter 10, and that vision plays out in chapters 11 and 12. And I want you to remember that the core prophecy that Daniel has been dealing with is a prophecy about the kingdoms that are about ready to come after Daniel wrote the book. And here are the kingdoms. The first one, the one that was in power uh, as he's talking, uh, as he's uh, receiving the vision, is the Babylonians. He, remember, he's in exile in Babylon. He doesn't live in Israel or Jerusalem. He lives in Babylon. At the time that we're dealing with uh, Daniel, here in chapters 10 through 12, he's around 85 to 90 years old. He's been there for 70 years. It's coming to the end of the 70 years. God put them there for 70 years for not obeying the Sabbath rests and also for spiraling out of control into idolatry. So God used an enemy of his people to chastise his people. Why? To wake them up. And some of us need woken up because we partied too hard last night or your favorite team got beat or something like that. And we need woken up, but as an American church, folks, we need woken up. Is it woken or wo waked? Whatever. Awoke. There we go. So, we need that. We need to wake up. And God sometimes chastises us, rattles our cages, so that we'll wake up to what's really important. And what a better... Or is there a better message for a Sunday of the first day of the week that God wants to get our attention? It's not about our homes, how big they are and how wonderful they look. Martha Stewart, blah, 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 Instagram, white picket fence, uh, take the vacation, 401k. It's not about that. Those things are great and you're to be a good steward, but that's not what it's about. There's this mission that God calls us to. You're going to see it right here in the book of Daniel. He calls us to a mission, and I say to myself, I get off topic here sometimes. I get off mission. God is a missional God. He was, or is, perfectly self-sufficient. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before time even began, self-sufficient with love and communication. And he didn't have to create humans, but he did, knowing that they were going to fall and he'd have to send his Son Send. You listening? Send. It's missional. And he sends his son into the world. Christmas. Missional. To save us. There's a mission. God's on a mission. He's ascending God. We're missional people if we've surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ. He calls us to his mission, not our mission. That's what this tells you in our context. It also tells you something else here, what we're going to study here at the end. As we see the kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Those are the core kingdoms that God uses at the beginning with Daniel to bring us through uh, Daniel chapter 10, 12. And he uses then uh, an offshoot of the Greek kingdom, these two kingdoms called the Seleucids, and the Ptolemies, and they're going to be very important today. And here's what I want you to write down in your notes right now. Write this down, because if you don't know this, you'll never understand chapter 11. 
If you said Seleucids, the Seleucids, just phonetically spell it. There you go, but that's not phonetic. That's, you're good. <laughs> Seleucids, they're the northern kingdom. Just say northern kingdom, they're Syria. And then the Ptolemies are Egypt and North Africa. They're the southern kingdom of Daniel chapter 11. And why does God focus on these two kingdoms? Watch this. This is important. Of all the kingdoms that were taking place during these times, why in this vision does God concentrate on the Seleucids that came out of the Greeks, Alexander the Great, we've explained it before, and the Ptolemies came out of Alexander the Great. Why does he focus on the northern kingdom of the Seleucids and the southern kingdom of the Ptolemies? Here's why. Because they sandwich Israel. That's why. So when you're reading through this and you go, what is all this history about? You math people. No, I'm kidding. It's because they sandwich Israel and they fought wars back and forth and they trounced the land. <laughs> That's why it impacted his people. So last week, we started to get into this vision. Uh, Daniel starts to have this vision. And their prophecies concerning Medo-Persia and Greece last week. And now there's this ramped up momentum talking about people like Antiochus Epiphanes. Now watch. Antiochus Epiphanes, anytime you say Antiochus, there were several Antiochuses. And they all came from the Syrian kingdom, the northern kingdom, out of Alexander the Great. And Antiochus Epiphanes was a great type of the Antichrist that's coming. So let me just give you a little the, the prophecy in 10 seconds or 30 seconds. Here's prophecy. We live in the church age. Ever since Jesus died, rose again, and God came and through the Holy Spirit created the church, we've been living in the church age. And at some point, Christ's going to come and meet us in the clouds, that's in Thessalonians, and call up his church in the rapture. Then there's going to be a covenant made by the Antichrist that it appears to solve the Middle East peace crisis. And for seven years, there's going to be a, the time of Jacob's trouble, otherwise called the seven years of tribulation. At the end of the period of tribulation, Jesus is going to come back physically to the earth. And guess who he's going to bring? The church, you and I. And He's going to set things right. There's several things. We're going to talk about them today that's going to happen. And for a thousand years, he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And guess who's going to take part in his administration? Us. It's what the Bible says, folks. And after a thousand years, the thousand year reign, Christ, God is, excuse me, God the Father is going to take up this world and create a new heaven a new earth, new Jerusalem. There's prophecy in one minute. Okay? And so there's this person that we've been dealing with now over the last several chapters. 
And he keeps pop, his head keeps popping up, or his, his uh, references keep popping up to him. It's the Antichrist. We've seen him now in several chapters, and here it really ramps up. Okay? Everybody with me? All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go real fast through Daniel 11. And here's why. This is the most history in one chapter in all of the Bible. In fact, many people believe that there, or have counted and say that there are 150, approximately 150 prophecies that are here in Daniel. Remember, Daniel's written in around the 500s, middle 500s BC or so. And these prophecies take us from the 300s through the 100s BC. So in other words, Daniel's writing this before it happens. And then it takes us all the way into eternity. That's what these prophecies are all about. Everybody with me? So when you read this, here is the chapter especially of the Bible. There's other ones here in, or of Daniel. There's others in Daniel too where the critics go, no way it could have happened. This one they go, it's really no way. Because if you know the history between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, this is written approximately 200 years before those people came on the scene and it details in exact specific, um, uh, it gives the story of how all these kings and all these uh, even queens and wives interacted. And you can go online, I, I can give it to you after this, but you can go online and search this and it'll give you all the history and you'll go, no way. This really happened this way. So what the critics say is, they don't disagree that these things happened in history according to the prophecy. Here's what the critics say. He didn't write it in 500, he wrote it closer to 100 BC. Everybody with me? After these events unfolded, because they say, how could any man know this? And that's the point. So what you're studying now is that God delivers his word and he never fails to bring it to pass. So anything that you read from the Lord or you know from the Lord, his promises, you can take the promise and stand on it and know for sure that it's going to come to pass. Not only does he make the prophecy, here's the other point I want you to know, internalize this. He's able to make it come to pass. Nations don't bother him. Elections don't bother him. You win or lose an election, he knows. He's big enough to handle it, if you get what I'm saying. Choices he works with, and it's incredible. So here you go. In the first year of Darius the Mede, remember the building blocks of prophecy. It's Babylonians. Medo-Persians, where are we? Medo-Persians. Greeks after that. Romans after that. That's what Daniel was told in the beginning of this book. And here in Daniel 11, he's saying, I received this vision during the Medo-Persian reign, which Daniel stayed on in. In other words, he was in the courts, the political courts of the Babylonian administration 
He was doing great. They get wiped out in one night, and guess what happens? The Lord gives him favor, and he stays on with the Medo-Persians. Do you remember that? Okay, so now he receives this vision during that time. And remember, some people believe that Darius the Mede was Cyrus the Persian. I know that sounds funny to you, but Cyrus the Persian is the one who told Daniel and his exiled people, okay, you can go back and you can rebuild your temple and you can read all about that, all about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. You can read all about that, okay? But some people believe Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian were one and the same. But also, Darius the Mede is sort of a title, so some people believe this is a governor who Cyrus the Persian put into power. We talked about that. Go back and get the tape. Well, during this time, it says, I, even I, stood up and, to confirm and strengthen him. Uh, and now I will tell you the truth. Now that's funny. The Bible's funny. I love it. It's like, this is so incredible, what the Lord delivered to me, I'm telling you the truth. Do you understand what I mean? He tells you beforehand. People aren't going to believe it. <laughs> it's so specific. So he goes, I tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be richer than them all. Now, that did happen. After this Cyrus the Persian, Darius the Mede, the son of Cyrus, Cambyses, came into uh, power. After him, a guy named Pseudo Smyrtus. After him, a guy named Darius Histaspus. But this is the reason I'm telling you, uh, I went through all of these, because after that, there's this guy named Xerxes the Great, or Ahusarius, and you all are familiar with him. See how the Bible ties itself together? You all are familiar with him because you love at women's studies to trot out the book of Esther. And guess who married Esther? Xerxes the Great. Oh, I thought that was fantastic. Apparently you don't. Well, that happened in the high 400s BC, and Xerxes the Great, the Persian, listen to this, goes over to Greece and attacks them. And he wins, sort of, but it depletes his massive, massive, massive army. And it starts a downfall of the Persian, Medo-Persian army. You got me? And the reason I'm telling you that is, watch what happens next. And the fourth shall be far richer than, than them all by his strength, through his riches, and he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. He goes against Greece, and watch, it's one of those things where they hold a grudge. They're like, you came and attacked us, and 150 years later, watch this, verse 3 happens. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And now we've talked about this man. This is the Greek. Grecian king, Alexander the Great. So between verse 2 and verse 3, we've just skipped, you get me? 150 years, but it's still in the future at the time that Daniel's writing this. Everybody with me? We have the advantage of looking back from history and matching this all up. And it's clear who these people are. And this one is Alexander the Great. 
And Alexander the Great heard all the stories. By the way, his teacher was Aristotle. He was so smart, and at 20 years old, he takes over the Grecian army, and he basically wipes out the ancient world. And they had been holding a grudge for 150 years against the Persians. And they go against them, and they wipe him out. And he takes, remember, the whole ancient world. And at age 32, hold on here now. I see even some of you glazing over, you math types. But it has a point. At age 32, he says, oh, I've conquered everything. What do I do now? He goes to a party. Uh, most people say he gets pneumonia or something else and dies, age 32. And for about 20 years, listen to this, they try to give this kingdom, Greece, to his kids. Now, this is important, but he can't, nobody can take the powerful or the power or the kingdom, none of his family. That's important. So remember, I told you, he gives it to, or it's given to four generals. And this is where you've got to really pay attention. Out of the four generals, there was Cassandra, uh, I don't know how to say it, Lysimachus, Cassandra, but these, the number three and number four generals, you got to pay attention to, and it's Seleucid and Ptolemy. So Seleucid, do you remember? North, Syria, Ptolemy, South, Egypt. It's very important. Because watch this. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds. That's Alexander the Great. But watch this. This is why we have learned about this already. But Daniel, through the message from God, learned something new here. When his kingdom's broken up into the fours, none of his family, it says it right there, none of his family will be able to take the kingdom. What do you mean? His posterity. That's, by the way, some sort of legal word. No heir can take the king. Or take, take the king. Take the kingdom. Everybody with me? See, we're sitting on this side of history going, oh, well, could you get through this because I hate history and I want to go home or whatever. But you don't understand, this is written hundreds and hundreds of years with great specificity about what happened in history. So, it can't go among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom's going to be uprooted even for others besides these. And now watch, from verse 5 through verse 20, and I'm not going to take you through it. They just go back and forth. Almost every verse is about a different Seleucid king who fights against a Ptolemy king. And it's with real specificity. In fact, look here. I just want to point out one of them. Verse 6. And at the end of some years, they're going to join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south, who's the south? Ptolemy. Uh, shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. Now listen, all the Ptolemies had a one or a two or a three after them. Number, verse six here describes what really happened in history. One of the um, Ptolemies, Ptolemy II, decided, you know what, we've been fighting. We've been fighting, so let's do this. I'm going to send my beautiful, gorgeous, amazing daughter, Berenice, 
And I'm going to send him up, or send her up to Antiochus II and say, hey Antiochus, here you go. You can marry my daughter. And she was beautiful and gorgeous. And guess what Antiochus II did in Syria? He said, great, I'll marry her. But first, you know what I have to do? I have to divorce my wife, Laodice. You ever heard of Laodicea? Okay, Laodice. Or Laodice. Anyway, so he does. And then what happens was, the king of Egypt, Ptolemy, dies. And Laodice ain't a happy camper. She'd been put, put off, you know, been divorced. So she starts to talk back to her former husband, and she gets him, this is all history, to put away Berenice and remarry her. And that's all well and good, except for guess what happens? Berenice says, really? Okay. And she kills them all. She murders them. And this details it, folks. And it hasn't happened yet. It's happening in the future for Daniel. We're on this side looking back going, amazing. And so you just go back and forth from chapter or verses 5 all the way through uh, verse 20. It's just back and forth. Ptolemy does something to a Seleucid. Seleucid does something to a Ptolemy. And the reason they're telling you this is because in the middle, who they're fighting over is Israel. They're fighting for that land. That's why this is in here. But then something different happens. Uh, watch this in verse 21. And in his place shall arise a vile person. Well, that's nice to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. Now remember, out of the Seleucids came this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, eventually. There's several Seleucids that come in as kings, but eventually it gets down to this guy named Antiochus, real original name, because all of them were named Antiochus. Antiochus I, Antiochus II, Antiochus Philadelphus, Antiochus uh, blah, 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 until it gets to Antiochus Epiphanes, and they detail it perfectly because it says here, watch this, and in his place shall arise a vile person. We'd been, he'd been uh, described earlier in the book of Daniel, remember, as the little horn, and we saw uh, things about him, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. The reason is, is because he came to the power by deceit and deception. But he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom. That's what he did. He did amazing things for the grassroot level people. He would give the Jews things and the, the people who lived in the cities things. And he would come in and he got the people to love him. And so he obtained power that way through deceit and what seemed like peace. And with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him. There comes a point in time in Antiochus Epiphanes' reign, after he uh, gains power, where he persecutes all the people around him, including the Jews. Listen to this. And swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Who's the prince of the covenant? I think, I think... It's the Jewish high priest, because if you study um, history, he wiped out the real Jewish high priest and put his own high priest and installed him 
as uh, the high priest there in the uh, area of Jerusalem. And after the league is made with him, he's going to act deceitfully. He's going to come up and become strong with a small number of people. He's going to enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province, and he's, he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse them, uh, or disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. See what he did? He tried to get people to like him by giving them stuff. And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He's going to stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. Who's the king of the south? Ptolemies. And uh, the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they're going to devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. That actually happened. People who were close to him double-crossed him. You can look this all up. Uh, he, uh, his army shall be swept away, and many shall foul dawn slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. But it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. And now you, listen, wake up now, wake up. And here you do, you, you underlined appointed time, and here's what God says. Right here, and you don't even know it, maybe I didn't know it before this week, but you know it now. Here it is. Here's what God says. Daniel, you came to me and you asked me, Lord, it's the end of this 70-year period. What do we do now? What's going to happen to us? I love my people. What's going to happen? That's why Daniel was praying and fasting for three weeks, 21 days, in Daniel 10. And remember, angels warred over the answer. An angel was dispatched from heaven to give him the answer, and a fallen angel comes and combats him. It's because Daniel was asking, what's going to happen to my people? And God tells them, tells Daniel, he, he, I just read it to you. But then God says, and this is so wonderful, this is the nature of God. You asked me what was going to happen to your people, and you had just a very limited view and now I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to them for all time. That's what the appointed time means. There's a time that's appointed that God's going to put these things into motion. The rapture and the tribulation and his return on the, the earth. So, isn't that beautiful? I mean, you ever been... Have you ever prayed, or how about this? This has happened to me. Have you not prayed about something and you think, oh, God's going give to give me stuff because I'm a great prayer. And then you're not praying. You know, you get, you know, football games come in and, or whatever business comes in or whatever a, a situation comes in and you just feel yucky and miserable and you're not praying. And God just somehow, some way blesses your socks off and you go, oh my, I didn't even pray. Oh man, that's happened to me. Hasn't it happened to you? Because God is so gracious and wonderful and right here he's doing it to Daniel. You asked me about the 70 years and what's going to happen in the near term. I'll tell you that, which he does. But I'm going to tell you about what's going to happen for all time. The appointed time. So, verse 28, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. Now watch, at the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south. 
But it shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. And that apparently is what happened. He tried to go down into the south. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes did. He went through Israel. He tried to go against Egypt and northern Africa. And lo and behold, those people sign up the Romans. And the Romans come across the Mediterranean Sea, apparently with ships, and beat him back. And this is really weird, but it happened. He's angry, Antiochus Epiphanes. In fact, he meets with a Roman general. This is history. And Antiochus, he says, uh, the, the Roman general says to him, well, what are you going to do? If you don't leave here, I'm going to wipe you out right now. And Antiochus Epiphanes says, I'll think about it. And the Roman general takes his sword and draws a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes and said, before you leave this circle, you better tell me or you're done. So he's embarrassed. He's embarrassed in front of his men. And so he goes back up through uh, Egypt, or excuse me, Israel to go back to where he is in Syria and he takes it out on the Jews. And this is history. So he returns and shows regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. And that's what they did. They defiled the sanctuary in Jerusalem. You know the stories. I've told you this. They decapitated Christians. They boiled them. They grilled them. They were vicious to the Jews. And then they took their sanctuary, stopped the sacrifices. They take pigs, uh, pig, and uh, they uh, sacrifice it on the altar. And they take the blood, and they smear it all over the temple area. Isn't that, you know, I mean, come on. This is awful. This is history. This is what they do. And so they defile the sanctuary. Then they'll take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now remember, Jesus, in his sermon, Olivet Discourse, refers to the abomination of desolation that comes in the middle of the tribulation period. This is a type and shadow Epiphanes did what the Antichrist is going to do in the tribulation. And the abomination of desolation, apparently, listen to what Epiphanes did. He took some sort of statue or idol of Zeus or somebody. Most people say Zeus. Some people say it was him himself. And he set it up in the temple and he asked the Jews to worship them. Worship that. And of course they couldn't do this. And if they didn't do this, ah. You get it? This is history. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But watch this. This is so beautiful. Don't, don't tune out. I know it's a lot of history. But the people who know their God, I want, you to, I want you to, this is our theme going into the new year. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Now, who does this uh, refer to. You, you remember, I already told you the story about the Maccabees. What a great name for a business. If you get a business somehow, name it the Maccabees. Somebody here has done that. But this happened, the Maccabees, in the 160s BC. Are you catching this? 160s BC, there was this guy named Mattathias. When Epiphanes did this, he became irate, and he lived out in the country. And in one of the cities, a Jewish guy came to give homage to these idols and things that Epiphany sets up. And guess what Mattathias and his family do? They wreck him. 
And then they go up into the hills and they start guerrilla warfare against Antiochus Epiphanes' reign and government, and they eventually take it over. And you know the story because the Jews still celebrate this to this day. It's called Hanukkah, the festival of lights, because what they did was after they sort of drove out the Syrians, they go into the temple and they cleanse it because it was bloody and gross and desecrated. And they cleanse the temple and then they look around for the oil and they go, oh boy, only enough oil for one day. And miraculously it keeps going for those eight days and they still celebrate Hanukkah to this day. These, I believe, are the Maccabees they're talking about. But in a greater sense, I think for you and for me, do you know what the Lord wants to do this year? I know he wants to do this. He wants to do great exploits. He wants you and I to be strong. And this is an interesting thing. You say, strong, okay, I got to, t listen, I got to test testosterone, buddy. I like, I like to watch football and gladiator. I like that stuff. But here's the point. Jesus tells us this before you get to thinking like I think. If you're weak, he can work strong things through you. And you say, well, wait a minute. What do you mean by weak? Humble, teachable, dependent, not prideful. Aye, aye, aye. Recognizing that when you walk out the door in the mornings to do your job or to do the things that you do during the day, you need him for everything just to live and to ask him to bring you into a place where you can share and love and give people the gospel that they so desperately need that God has given to you every single day every time you leave this sanctuary that's what's great in God's economy it doesn't necessarily have to be you know you think great oh great exploits maybe I should hire you know uh, uh, rent out Heinz Field which isn't Heinz Field and I have no idea what the name is now but maybe I should rent out Heinz Field and try to be an evangelist that's not necessarily what God's saying to you maybe it's that person you can't forgive maybe it's that person you have a grudge against Whatever it is, God's saying, I want you to restore and give life, but you can only do it to the degree that you depend upon me. In your weakness, I'm made strong, the Lord says. If you want to do great exploits this year, and we do, not only are, do we want to do them, we're called to do them. We're called to make disciples. Then you and I, and we need to be weak so he could be made strong in our lives. You get it? That's the theme. And it was the theme here. And these, this family, Judas Maccabeus, you know, the son of Mattathias, he spearheaded this thing back, uh, back then in the 160s BC. And he did something great that nobody thought he could do. He overthrew this Syrian northern king you get it god can do it through you too you know that person in your family that you say no way you just look at him and you go yeah good luck lord <laughs> you don't know them take it to them ask the lord to open up doors for them share with them love them that's what's great 
and big. And those, verse 33, of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. But many shall join them by intrigue. Many shall join them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fail to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. There's going to be people who, by intrigue and double-cross, are going to do things. But the Lord can refine and purify even then. And now between verse 35 and 36, I want to remind you of something. Remember chapter 9 of Daniel? We did the 69 weeks pro- or 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. And we said there were 69 weeks appointed for um, uh, this prophecy. And then there was a 70th week that was hanging out there. And we talked about why there must be a gap between the 69 weeks measured by the nation of Israel and the 70th week, which we believe is the time of Jacob's trouble or the time of the tribulation. We went through that. There's a gap. Here we see the gap. Remember how gracious God was? He said, you asked me about the immediate future. I'm going to tell you about time. So he jumps here to the gap and he says, the king, now he's switched not from Antiochus Epiphanes, but to the coming king, who's a fake king, the Antichrist. And I have a number of reasons why I think that's a gap, or there's a gap, and he's talking about the Antichrist. I can tell you after, or give you the information. The king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. We're now reading about what the Antichrist will look like, be like, sound like. He's going to exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. By the way, Jesus said, those who believe in him will escape the wrath. Well, anyway, during this wrathful time of seven years, this is what the Antichrist is going to look like. We talked earlier, he's going to come probably from a ten-nation confederation from Europe as a vestige of the Roman uh, era, the European countries. He's going to come out of there. He's going to make a treaty of some sort. It seems like a peace treaty. I personally believe, you don't have to believe this, that he's going to somehow solve the problem on the Temple Mount. And for some way, somehow, he's going to solve it so that the Jews can rebuild their temple up there. That's what I think. You can be a Berean and think about that. Well, anyway, but this is what he's going to be like. He's going to regard neither the God of his fathers. So many people believe he's Jewish, of Jewish descent because of that verse. Again, be a Berean. And then look at this other one. It's very interesting. This Antichrist is neither, uh, uh, will regard the, the God of his fathers, maybe he's Jewish, but he's a secular Jew, nor will he regard the desire of women. And some people say, because of this verse, that he will be uh, not like women or be a homosexual. I don't personally believe that's what this is saying. I think what this is saying is, if you look in the Old Testament, including in Haggai, I think it's 2.7, The desire of the women prior to the time of the Messiah was to birth the Messiah. 
You can look in Haggai 2.7. I think what this is talking about is that he's not going to pay attention to his religious side, although he's going to come as a Jewish person or have a Jewish descent. He's going to be a secular Jew. And he's, uh, uh, he's uh, the God of his father, nor the desire of women. He won't regard the desire of women. He disregards the Messiah. That's what I think that means. You get it? Okay, now watch. Nor regard any God, for he exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses. That means he loves war. He loves military. He loves weaponry. And a God which his fathers didn't know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones, pleasant things. Thus, he's going to act against the strongest, or he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Now watch, in the book of Revelation, it says that after three and a half years of the tribulation period, where God is pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Listen, the Antichrist is going to be all smiles and diplomatic and a, a great orator and a great statement. And people are going to go, wow, you solved some stuff in the Middle East and you're such an amazing. He's going to be on Time Magazine. I, I don't know about that, but you get what I'm saying. Man of the year. And he's going to do that. But in Revelation, it says after three and a half years, he's going to set up the abomination of desolation in the temple. That's what the Antichrist does. And I want you to remember something from Revelation. It says the power behind all of this is Satan himself. That's what it says in the book of Revelation. And I believe what this is saying here is that he's going to act in these ways with a foreign god, Satan. Because what did, what did Satan want to be? Just like God. And he was cast out of heaven which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many. And there's going to be something, remember, that has to do, and I don't understand it all, but there's, remember, divide the land for gain. Come on, folks. If you read any day about Israel and the Middle East, what are they talking about? In fact, as Netanyahu was reelected this last couple weeks, what did he say? Can't be a two-state solution. What did Joe Biden say? We ain't abandoning our two-state solution proposal for the Middle East. And the point I'm making here is that verse has always been in the news. It's always there, and it's still there today. Okay, now watch. Something's going to happen when Jesus comes back at the end of of the seven-year period of tribulation. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. Some people believe it happens in one place, the Valley of Megiddo, which we've been to. You can go to if the Lord tarries and you go to Jerusalem with it or Israel with us. But really, I think what the Battle of Armageddon is, is a campaign that's all throughout Israel. And one piece to this fight is here, and it's very interesting. At the time of the end of the king of the south, at the time of the end, at the time of the end, the king of the south, maybe Egyptians or Arabs, shall attack him. Shall attack who? The Antichrist. And the king of the north shall come against him. Many people believe that's Russia, but somebody from the north, like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, many ships, enter the countries, overwhelm them, pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land. There you go. 
The battle starts to shape up right there in Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these are going to escape, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Somehow, Jordan is going to escape this battle. Maybe because the Bible tells us during the tribulation period, the remnant Jews who are saved from death are going to hide in Jordan. Maybe. It's just a theory. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He'll have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. The east, China. The north, Russia. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And that really does happen in the book of Revelation. We see that, unfortunately, he takes it out on the Jewish people and many others. Okay, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountains, yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Somehow, some way, we know how. I mean, Jesus is going to uh, orchestrate it. Well, the, listen. These people think they're fighting against the Antichrist and they're all coming together in the area of Israel. You get it? They're just thinking, I'm getting that guy. He thinks he's doing this to our country. Here we come and we gather in Israel. Where will we, they gather? If you've ever been to the Valley of Megiddo, you could see forever out there. And you can see how armies would congregate right there. And there's going to be this campaign, the Battle of Armageddon. Jesus is going to come back and set it all right. Okay, watch. Now just hang on with me. I rushed you through the history. Because here's the end. At that time, Michael shall stand up. Michael. Oh, Jerusalem fund right there. Many more of us are going. Put it in the box. And we're on our way. At that time, Michael shall stand up. Michael. I wanted Michael, an angel, he's so associated with spiritual battle. Michael, associated with spiritual battle. Daniel 10, 13 and 21. Jude 1, 9. Very interesting. Do you remember this? Michael and Satan himself fight over Moses' body. It says it right there in Jude 1, 9. Revelation 12, 7. You can see him battling the enemy angels. He's this angel, of course, who has a special, special relationship as the special guardian, it seems, over Israel. Why do I say that? At that time, Michael shall stand up. Watch. He's the great prince who watches over the sons of your people. Who's he talking to? Daniel. He's a guardian of Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble. If you went to Jeremiah 30, verse 7, right now, you would see that the time of Jacob's trouble, or excuse me, the time of the tribulation, seven-year period, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, is called the time of Jacob's trouble. He's talking about the tribulation period. There's going to be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. You could read in Revelation 12, 13 through 17, the fury with which the Antichrist comes against and Satan come against the Jewish people. Sadly, as bad as they've had it, there's going to be tough times on the horizon for the nation of Israel.
God is trying to get their attention. In fact, Jesus quoted this in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 21. He talks about it. And even to that time, and at that time, your people shall be delivered. Huh. There's going to be a remnant of remaining Jews. They're going to have deliverance. It's assured. God promises to keep and preserve a remnant of the Jews. And you go, okay, I want you to just get over with this. But you don't, and here's why. You could go all the way back to Genesis 17:7 and see where God promises right at the beginning of the book that he's going to preserve them for all time. And see, God keeps his promises. And you might be in the midst of something and you say, Lord, I don't know. I just don't know. I prayed for three seconds this morning and you haven't delivered yet. It's been a day. You still haven't delivered. It's been two days. I don't think you love me anymore. You got it wrong. The Lord loves you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And you can stand on all of his promises because they're coming true. And watch this. Everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Wait a minute. You're going to learn something now that maybe you never knew before. So pay attention. First of all, I think what he's talking about here with many of those who are found written in the book refer to as 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelist witnesses who God preserves during the tribulation period. But he also refers to something. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth are going to awake. Now watch. You need to know this. If this isn't a motivation for 2023, I don't know what is. There is this thing called a resurrection. You ever heard of it? But I don't know if you know this, because a lot of Christians don't. There's sort of two resurrections. Read it. Some to everlasting life, but others, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And this is actually referred to, folks. You go, wait a minute, that's buried way back in the Old Testament, Daniel, murky, I don't need it. I don't get it. Well, in John chapter 5, verse 29, he refers, Jesus does, to both of these resurrections. Some to everlasting life, but some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, I want you to see something. There's this thing going around that people sleep after they die. Or that people get rebuked somehow by the Lord if they're unbelievers and then they're annihilated. And it's all a lie. It's the lie of the enemy, in my opinion, because the Bible tells us right here, it's everlasting contempt. Not a time period contempt. If you go into the second resurrection, the resurrection of the dead... For all eternity, there'll be darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. It'll be awful. Nobody go there. Some to everlasting life. And you go, well, how does that work? Well, 
The first resurrection sort of takes places in stages. Jesus Christ, remember, said he was the first fruit that paved the way for resurrection of all of us who believe in him. And I believe there's going to be the resurrection of the dead in Christ at the Lord's return. And then there's going to be a resurrection of the, of the martyrs who died in the tribulation period, Revelation 20, verse 4. And these Old Testament saints are going to be raised at the end of the tribulation. So see, I believe that at the rapture, you're going to receive your re resurrected, glorified body. You're going to live in heaven with him and come back and rule and reign with him at the end. But people who die as believers in the tribulation, watch this, there's going to be at the end of the tribulation period, their resurrection. Well, what about the resurrection of shame or death? Well, that's going to happen at the end of the 1,000 year reign. You could look that up in Revelation chapter 20. It's the great white throne judgment. And I pray and hope that none of you are there. Not, I'm not there. And I pray and hope that for our families, none of them are there. God will be perfectly just at the great white throne judgment. He says this, watch. Here's what he says at the great white throne judgment. You can read it in Revelation 20. Here's what he says. Are you counting on the finished work of Jesus Christ? And the answer is no, I'm not. So I don't receive the righteousness of Christ. So here's what God says. To be perfectly fair then, let's judge your righteousness. And if you've fallen short in that much, you pay the penalty yourself. We don't want to be there. We don't want our friends there. We don't want our enemies there. We don't want anyone there. So he follows this up. Watch this in Daniel in verse 3 with those who are wise. Don't you want to be wise in 2023? Is it 23? I don't even know. Don't you want to be wise in 2023? Then just quit thinking about ourselves so much. When you recognize there's two resurrections and you see that God makes a provision to make you wise. In fact, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. I really believe in the near term, this is speaking about the witnesses that happened during the tribulation. 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Remember, the Lord also sends angels across the sky to witness his, or to share his gospel. He puts people at the wailing wall. It'll be all over CNN and Fox and those crazy channels we all listen to. Those who are wise, though, in the far fulfillment, in an, in an additional fulfillment, it can be any of us. We think, you know, life's about sports or career, homes and cars and vacations and entertainment and Netflix and Spotify and stupid stuff like that. And those are all vehicles so that people can get saved and not go to the second resurrection. You get it? And he says, if you want to be wise and shine like the brightness of a firmament, then do this. Those turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In other words, invest your life right here. That's what God's telling Daniel. And that's what God's telling us. He's saying, do you want to spend your life or invest your life? You want to never have fulfillment or be fulfilled and pour it all out for me? Do this. Point people to my righteousness. Oh, now it brings me to my favorite part of the Bible. 
So you go, okay, well, what does that mean for me? Well, come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm tempted to just read part of it, but I got to read a lot of it. (laughs) Look in verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, our bodies, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternity, eternal in the heavens. For this, in this we groan earnestly. We want to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, this is talking, look, ultimately our glorified resurrected bodies, folks. If indeed... Uh, uh, I lost my place. Uh, In this joke, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, verse 4, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. What? Guarantee where? Into heaven. Eternal life. When you become a Christian, the Spirit of God comes into your life. And it's a guarantee into heaven. So we were always confident knowing that we, while we were at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We're confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And then verses 9 through 11 tells us about our judgment seat as, Christ, as Christians. We're going to be evaluated on our stewardship, etc. But flip down to verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, see, folks, when you leave here, I want you to be beside yourself. You know what with? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your bodily resurrection and the fact that there are people that you know right here, right now, you're thinking of them, they're going into the second resurrection. And I want you to be beside yourselves. I want to be beside myself with that. It's for you. For the love of Christ compels us. You love people genuinely. And that compels you because we judge thus. That if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live should live no longer for themselves. 2023. Let's get rid of the self-life. And move on in the life that God has for them. We're not living for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Brad told a story about his neighbor last night who he was making fun of, and he was, the neighbor was making fun of Brad. And you know, you get back and forth, I hope I'm not oversharing, because he shared it publicly. And the neighbor, when he had his surgery, came and helped him up the steps. No one else was there to help him. And the Lord taught him a lesson, and he's teaching us a lesson. We don't judge people according to the flesh and the things that come out. We know that there's a bigger and greater thing and a more awful thing for some that's waiting. So don't see people that way. They got one up on me. I'll get them back. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, 
Listen, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Watch, I read this whole thing for you. <laughs> You're like, please don't do it anymore. 2023, I know your ministry. I know exactly what your ministry is. And the only reason I know is because I can read. And it's this, that God reconciled me to the Father, or to him, through his Son. And now he's calling you to be a minister of reconciliation. Because watch, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. You're a minister of reconciliation, folks. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Here it comes. Not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. You can hear the heart of God. I don't want anybody to go into hell. My heart is that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life, the Bible tells us. That's God's heart, and he's pleading with us. Get serious. Wake up. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There it is. There's what you can tell people right there. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, righteousness of God in him. Oh my. You see? Turn back to Daniel. All these years ago, 600 B.C., I'm going to lay out all the near-term history. I'm going to lay out the future history. And then I'm going to give you your mission. Because I'm a missional God, he says. I'm mission. And I want you to do this. Talk to people about righteousness. Be a minister of reconciliation. It's 2023. It never changed. And you will be wise and you will have invested your life if that's where you are and focus. You get it? So he goes on and he says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. In other words, he's saying protect them, guard these words, because many are going to run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Now, a lot of people take this to mean that knowledge is going to increase in the end times, more computer knowledge. And yes, I think there's something to it, but here's what he's saying. As things start happening in the end times, watch, like COVID, these weird things out of the blue, you're like, is somebody punking me? They're, I mean, the world shut down in two days. And as we get closer to the end, these things are going to make better and better sense. You get what I'm saying? Knowledge shall increase. Protect these words. Make sure you protect them, Daniel. Then Daniel looked, and they stood two others, one on this riverbank. This was first mentioned back in chapter 10, verse 4, these ones, and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, swore by him who lives forever. 
that it shall be for a time, times and a, uh, a time, times and a half a time. In other words, uh, three and a half years. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. In other words, when the Jewish people are broken, humbled, are ready to receive their Messiah, all these things are going to be finished. You get it? <laughs> How merciful and wonderful that God would tell us all this. Although I heard, I did not understand that. That's funny. You might be sitting there going, I don't understand all this. Well, you're not alone. Daniel's the guy, and he's like, I don't get all this. My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But the wise shall understand. There's always going to be this. Those who surrender their lives to Jesus Christ and are made pure, and those who reject. And from that time that the daily sacrifices is taken away and the abomination of desolation is shut up, there is going to be 1,290 days. Now that's strange because in Revelation it says 1,260 days. Is it a mistake? No, I don't think so. I think in 1,260 days, Jesus returns after the abomination of desolation in the middle of the tribulation period 1,290 days is probably something like how Jesus installs his government. But wait a minute, there's another time frame. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. And you're like, what, what is that? Remember, Jesus has to judge the nations. That happens at this time. And maybe, quite possibly, that's what that's talking about. But you, go your way till the end. For you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the last day. Like, wow. He's telling that to Daniel, but he's told us that. If you go over to 1 Peter, go over to 1 Peter. Blessed, verse 3, 1 Peter 1, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. <laughs> 2023, 2022, 2019, whenever you surrendered your life to the Lord, whenever he comes back, 2024, 2025, I don't know when he's coming back. You got hope. COVID could come, your man or woman in elections could get beat, you might have a devastating illness, circumstances humanly could be in the toilet, and you got hope. And here's the deal, it's not some false hope that you can't bank on, it's a living hope. It's the living person and work of Jesus Christ who never fails. Watch this. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What to? To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that doesn't fade away, which is reserved in heaven for you. You ever... You ever... 
This is sort of morbid to think about, but let's think about it for a minute. Listen, we've had people die in our families, right? You might think you shouldn't probably talk about this, Pastor, but when the lawyer, lawyer comes and he goes, let's read the will together. It's cool. It's beautiful. It's wonderful when the person who's deceased has thought about you and included you in the will. Just being honest with you, 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 if you say not so, I don't think you're telling the truth. <laughs> but the Lord has an inheritance spiritually for you that's greater than anything you could ever think about or hope for. It's beautiful. It's reserved in heaven for you. And it, you're, you're there. You're seated in the heavenly places. All his riches, all his grace, all his mercy, all his beautiful beauty, all worship due unto him for all time, all satisfaction, all tears wiped away, all sickness gone, and on you go forever. And the will's been written, and it's been disclosed to you. And you're like, oh, he thought of me. And he thought of Daniel. And he thinks of the Jewish people. And these things are going to come to pass. And as we have the worship team come up and sing this, I can't believe, listen. 11 after 12. We just went through eternity of history. That's a miracle in and of itself. But... I want you to know something before you leave here. You never have to doubt what your life is all about. You have a mission because he's a missional God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come here this morning and thank you and praise you because we don't have to guess. Whatever you do in this world, Lord, you bring a pandemic or poor elections, <laughs> or whatever it is, we don't have to guess. We know. We have an inheritance. And Lord, we're thankful that you've set out the plan for Israel and for us. How merciful. You're the God of the universe. You didn't have to tell us. But you did. And we're thankful and we praise you and we want to honor you in 2023 today and always. In Jesus' name, amen.